This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. My name's Emily Siddons. I'm from Public Programs, and it's wonderful to see you all here tonight for this keynote lecture by Julian Roosevelt. We're extremely fortunate to have Julian here in Melbourne uh, for the opening of his exhibition manifesto. Uh, it opened to the general public today. I'm not sure if anyone has had a chance to see it yet. Maybe a raise of hands if anyone's seen it. Oh, quite a few of you. Wonderful. Um, well, I personally loved it. It was a beautiful show and some really amazing performances by Kate Blanchett in there as well. So, um, without further ado, and I would like to invite Julian up, but just a couple of uh, housekeeping points. Um, there will be time for questions at the end. We'll be coming around with a couple of roving mics. And if you do need to go to the bathroom during the talk, if you just enter out that door on that side there, because um, we will be securing this door. Uh, and also, Julian has very kindly offered to do a signing of the exhibition catalogue at the end of this talk. So if you are interested, um, we'll be doing that in the Acme shop just outside. So thank you all very much for coming and please join me in welcoming Julian. Thank you for coming. Um, can you raise your hands again for me to see who was in the show already? A few of you. So I might speak also about the pieces downstairs and show a few glimpses of it. Hello. You know what? It's coming, but let me just see how it's charged. I should be fine. Okay, so, um, yeah, I put, just an hour ago in the hotel, I put a few pictures together. So, um, to start with this one, to give you a little bit an idea of um, my work in general, this is an installation shot of a piece called American Night. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, which was shown here at ACME a few years ago. Maybe some of you have seen it. Um, I'm just showing this. It's still quite, for me, it's still quite recent. I mean, it's 2009, but it stands quite, quite um, well for what I do now. But I started um, differently, and I want to go back. I just left you, leave that for you. We'll come back to that later. Um, and I digged out something that is really early. This is 20 years ago, I did my diploma in architecture. I'm actually a trained architect, and, or my master in architecture. And um, I started with doing art with projects that were still very connected to architecture. Um, and you might later understand that this plays kind of a role in my work, maybe. Um, this is a project I did. I started to work with a, with a friend of mine, Piero Steinle. We worked as an artist duo for about four or five years. And this is the work we did in Munich, and then we did it two years later in Paris. These are images from Paris, and we simply call it the Unknown Cathedral. So we did a research. At that time, there was no Google Earth. Um, so we went to the city um, office and um, asked for aerial shots, airplane shots of the city of Paris. And we were interested in um, simply in great, big, large, unaccessible spaces because um, cities like Paris or Munich define themselves very much through the facades, through the emblematic buildings, and not so much through spaces like that, maybe apart from the one on the upper left-hand side. At the time, as you can see, that's the Grand Palais. It was still um, uh, not open to the public. And 
So we did an analyze of those aerial shots and found through the shape of rooftops um, large buildings and photographed and made them accessible. There was quite a long research actually, made them accessible to us and then um, photographed them with a kind of panoramic camera, highly complicated big machine made in Switzerland, of course, just <laughs> borrowed it. And, um, made these panoramic scans, and the idea was then the way we presented it was like that. So that's a shot from 2000, no, 1996, I think. Um, in this half-circle panoramic screen, they were um, split into pieces. You can see that a little bit on the right-hand side of the shadow of the person, you see a vertical line. That's a split between two slides in the middle. In the left-hand side, you see those slide, slide projectors. You know what? Maybe you can turn up the volume a bit, because I tend to turn away from the microphone as I look to the images. Um, and um, so we photographed sequences of those uh, buildings and then projected them also like that. So the audience, there were up to 100 people in that. Seems little, but when it was, when you were down there, it's five meter high. And people were sitting on the ground and on these kind of benches. So up to um, 100 people could fit in there. And you really had the feeling of being in that. The idea was also to have a kind of, um, um, revival of the idea of the panorama, you know, those pre-cinematic, um, being in Acme, it's kind of interesting to talk about that, pre-cinematic um, experiences where they just painted the landscape of the, let's say, the Alps, and you could see it in Paris, or a, a battle in, a Napoleon battle, and you could see it in, in Brussels or whatever, being surrounded by that, and so we transferred that idea to photog uh, photography. They were all uh, photographed in black and white, so there was something equalizing them. Just one picture from the very early time of my work. And going on, this is a, um, a, a kind of atlas quoting the um, Nemozine atlas from A.B. Warburg, an art historian who had defined what he called the pathos um, formulas in art history, quoting like repetitive gestures and um, figure constellations that have been, um, how do you say that? Um, my poor English, translated to collective memory until contemporary culture, so through from the Middle Age or from even ancient culture, Middle Age Renaissance. So you find this, uh, the same kind of figure constellations again and again. And he has done that, of course, with real art. And I tried to find the same um, formulas in the, the lowest of all kind of, or almost one of the lowest of all kind of cultural articulations, which is the soap opera. I collaborated with the Goethe Institute. Gabriele, that would make you very happy. <laughs> um, worldwide, actually, I sent uh, emails to every Goethe Institute, which is a global company. Uh, there are about 160, right? Is that right? Yes. Worldwide, so I sent emails to all of them, asking them to record for me soap operas from their local uh, TV program. And then I had to sit down. I really did myself a big favor because then I had to sit down and watch TV, uh, telenovelas for soap operas for, for months. And I distilled these kind of um, gestures and facial expressions that are repetitive. My, my um, idea was to, to prove that um, uh, no matter which is the cultural and historical or even political background um, on which these images are produced, there's a global, uh, a global language which is very repetitive. And that also does, of course, a lot with us. Um, so uh, something that interests me in general, you will see that in later works, is the, um, the concept of, let's call it just, um, myth-making or reality-making in cinema, or the moving image or, or publicity or you know, up to pornography. Um, 
um, that of course has a big impact on the way we behave. We always think we're humans because we're humans, but we're humans, of course, also because we have seen what we have seen in our life and consumed the images that we have consumed and the literature that we have read. So, um, um, yeah, especially a simple example, if you think about your romantic life, maybe, the way you kiss your boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or husband or whatever lover, um, you, you might think this is, this is human. Of course it is human. It's, maybe it's not so original. And it's de definitely a reflection of many things you have consumed in cinema and advertisement and so on. Keep it in mind when you kiss next time. So yeah, I go through this quickly. Okay, come on, these, are, these were two elder projects. And then about um, 15 years ago, I started to work um, more like a director. Um, I show my work. I work with the, with the mechanics of the film industry in a way, like uh, right from the scratch from this uh, first filmic project. But I show my work almost only in the art context. Um, and one last thing to say, the bridge maybe between this the former work and this work. So back in the mid-90s, there were a lot of artists, and um, we were, um, some of them, um, still thinking we are quite original in what we did, but um, we, we all thought like we don't need any new images. So there's all this. It was, of course, with the upcoming of the um, internet and the private TV and, and mass media and this flood of images that all of a sudden this tsunami of images that flooded every city in the world through globalization. All of a sudden, there was really a big breakthrough, I think. Like, if I just think about the, the TV program in Germany, we had three channels when I was a teenager, and then all of a sudden we had 30, or now we have 200 or whatever. So many artists reacted in a way that they said, there's no need to add up any images. Uh, why don't we just um, kind of reorganize what has already been done, like that global soap uh, project, the soap opera project? and give back their lost dignity to these images. And then you find out, after doing that a while, first of all, you find out you're not very original, because there were all these group shows about that. They were, I remember I've been in a show called Deep Storage uh, in the late 90s. That was an important show that toured quite a lot, and that was exactly dedicated to this collecting and archiving idea in contemporary art. And then you might find out, that at least was my experience, that there are images that are yours, and you want to add them up, or you want to see them done. So I started to to give up on that recipe of recycling images and, yeah, uh, creating my own. So this is a piece I like to show because it is actually, again, a very actual, or it has always been actual, but now it's a very popular actual um, political issue, the issue of asylum. It's actually the name of the piece. Um, uh, the, starting point of the project was a, f a simple personal experience. I went to see a friend in, in Barcelona and was sitting in a cafe and uh, in came one of these Pakistani rose sellers, um, dressed like all of them worldwide in this leather jacket and uh, white shirt. And uh, I thought, like, I've seen this guy everywhere in the world. It was kind of an epiphany, but I don't know anything about them. Is there mafia behind those rose sellers and what is behind them? So I thought, like, okay, what would be my... And I, and I thought it... I remember me sitting in the cafe and making notes, like, what else comes to my mind connected to a certain ethnic group and a certain typical underground, uh, underdog job cliche, like the Chinese fast food cook or... the. In Germany, we have a lot of um, Turkish street cleaners or Arabic newspaper sellers or 
exotic prostitutes, whatever that means. Um, so I thought that through and I thought like, okay, the way a contemporary artist would probably do that now is to become a journalist. And that's what you observe in many contemporary art shows that artists want to be journalists, but then they are not good journalists sometimes. And then you go in a place in any white cube museum in the world and you see artists talking about issues that concern us, but we are normally agreeing anyway with whatever um, they have to say as an audience. On vice versa, from an artistic point of view, it's really frustrating sometimes to present your work in, in the prison of the white cube because you have something to say, but probably not to exactly the visitors of that white cube because they agree anyway. So that's a dilemma in contemporary art, I find. Um, artists in the audience might know what I talk about. Um, so I thought like it would be interesting to talk more about this, um, about, about us, uh, our relation towards um, asylum seekers or migrants, uh, and about our complete ignorance. So I invented for, for nine groups, um, I invented for each group, which was connected to one job and one ethnic group, I invented some weird rituals. They, they are meaningless. They are Sisyphean um, rituals that, in a way, talk about their destiny, maybe. There's also a, a personal connection to the issue of asylum seekers. My mother works with um, asylum seekers' children since many, many years, and um, doing, you know, theater projects with them and language course and so on. So I was very, I, was, I kind of grew up with that and uh, always felt familiar with it, but still observed that even me thinking that I'm open-minded, this I had no idea. So, so we did uh, that project, and I probably best show you. Um, saying we, I'm always saying we because I work with teams, um, film teams. So I like to say we. Don't get confused. Um, I'm showing you the way. You can see that in this installation that it's uh, a bit similar. If you those who have seen downstairs um, manifesto. It functions quite similar, and I actually chose to show this today because it also has this choir element. Uh, here in that piece, which is uh, 15 years old, it really has a, a, a literally a, a choir, while in the manifesto piece downstairs, the choir rather, rather consists of Kate Blanchett speaking on a certain pitch tone for a moment uh, in different characters, which also come together as a kind of common voice. So there's, I repeat myself, probably I'm running out of ideas. The, the entire loop of the installation is almost an hour, so this is this choir moment happens sometimes on one screen, on two screens, then in, I think in two moments of the whole loop in uh, on the on all nine screens. And just a few words about what you have seen. It's very difficult to focus on one thing because there's so many things happening at once. So normally you walk around and you dive into one world of one cliche, and then you go to another one. And um, all of these rituals um, also. Um, where um, uh, kind of, or, or, or I hope they do, they reflect a little bit our exoticizing and also even eroticizing perspective on the other. So when we travel, we tend to idealize and, and go hunting with our cameras and, and find, we normally find what we want to find because we know exactly what we want to see and we, we, we film those. Let's, go, let's say you go to Bali and you film and kind of funeral, and you really don't go deep inside it, but you find it highly fascinating, and you shoot it, you find it, you bring it home as a trophy, and then, but if the same people would knock on your door at home, say, like, we want to live here, it's a, a very different, right? The typical issue is this taking pictures of poor, sweet little children, the same children being next to you in the subway in Sydney or Melbourne or Berlin, 
might frighten you, there might be pickpockets. So there's all this kind of um, cliche-ish thinking. And also the, the way I um, set those images um, uh, is almost edgy to kitsch. I mean, it's very beautifully done and a little sweetish, so that also I wanted it to be like that, so a little bit between the touristic beauty of traveling. I mean, tourism is also mise-en-scene. It's also uh, myth-making, if you want so, or fiction, and their reality. Tricky thing. Um, close this. Um, I mentioned Sisyphos, uh, Sisyphean. I said Sisyphean task. So Sisyphos is that goddess that was punished to push up by pushing up a, a stone up the hill, and when he just arrived, almost arrived, the stone went down. And there's this sentence of Albert Camus who said, um, "You have to imagine Sisyphos as a happy person, because every time he starts again, he can think, well, this time it's going to work." And so I think. <laughs> I think we all know this feeling, and we all are trapped in this kind of Sisyphean rituals in our own life, like in our work, in our daily routine. And it's something that interests me a lot, this work in general. Like, we don't question that a lot. I mean, we take it for granted that we need to work to get money and to live and to use things like bus stations and, and so on. <laughs> so all that can be questioned, right? It's funny. Like, I, I like to imagine... Um, uh, um, a person from, like, say, um, a Martian. Let's just imagine there is a Martian looking down on Earth and seeing uh, two people sitting in a cafe, and one is drinking a cold orange liquid, and the other one a warm brown liquid. It will be easy for him to understand that the human needs water to live, but why is one orange and cold and the other one warm and brown, and why do they sit outside and talk while they just have to drink that stuff? I mean, we, just as an example, we have all these rituals in our life that we don't question a lot, and I find it sometimes very, very funny. Um, so I'm this kind of person that you see in the corner suddenly bursting of laughter. <laughs> um, so I, I, made, I wanted to make a series of works about that, and I call it the Trilogy of Failure. Two of the pieces of the Trilogy of Failure are down in the, in the show, the first and the second part. First part is called uh, the Soundmaker. Second part is called Stuntman. So, kind of word game with the profession of stuntman, but stuntman. So, and the third one is called the Perfectionist. And all these three um, parts have one character as the protagonist. Um, this is the film set for for stuntman. I think before I say more about that, I'm going to show you a little bit about that. Although it's done in the gallery, but um, here you get some more information about it. So this is how it starts. It is a split screen installation in this case. That's part two of the trilogy of failure. So I'll talk over it a little bit. Apologies for that. Um, it's about a half hour loop, so I'm going to jump through it quickly. The, the, all three parts of the trilogy of failure are built in a way that you have the ego and the alter ego, so it's a kind of psychiatrical almost setup, um, or psychological setup. Um, you have two identities of the same character. In this case, it talks a lot about the destructive side in us, and in the sound maker, it's rather, which I'm going to show you later, is rather the constructive or artistic or creative 
aspect of life. And here you have this guy who is, you know, a contemporary character. He has something to do with film, maybe, that you might see later in his workspace. There's a few things. He might be a screenwriter or something. There's a Bunuel poster on the wall. Um, and strange things like this book, their bluff is not mirrored. And also Bunuel, the grandmaster of, great master of surrealism, is not mirrored. He's, he's against this mirroring. Of course, he's stronger than me, so he didn't allow me to mirror him. Um, and we see him, as you saw, entering in a funny way. He cleans it up while the other guy is just, you know, doing his daily procedure. He does this thing, which I also don't know why he does it. Um, takes these drops. I like to do that sometimes with my characters, that I give them kind of ticks or attitudes so they keep their secret even towards me. Um, and this evolves now, so you can observe him for a while, and then after a while, let me jump there. Again, in many of my works, there's this um, pendulum-like camera, so I don't edit a lot. Um, instead of editing, I kind of pull in a window over the scene and things happen when you come back or have changed when you come back. It has this hypnotic effect and it's also an answer to the increasing um, sequence of edits in contemporary moving image, no matter if it's publicity or cinema or everything, you know, um, the, the simple um, um, frequency of editings of edits has increased over the last 50 um, years enormously. And I find that very tiring. There's some inspiration for your evenings. <laughs> At least how to switch the light off. <laughs> I do it that way every, every always. No. It's a bit expensive. <laughs> yeah. So when we uh, rehearsed for that, he's actually is like a coincidence. I met this guy. Um, he is not only a real stuntman. He's also a karate um, guy. So he he knows how to switch off the light in a proper way. <laughs> And when we rehearsed for that, um, it was really funny to see that normally, you, whenever you do something violent, you instinctively picture it, depict it in your face, of course, right? You try to do something, try to destroy something without thinking, ah, it's very difficult. So we basically started rehearsing in my house where he just was beating the wall or something. Just, just pale face, like this Buster Keaton aspect. And that's, I think, very important for the for the humor in this piece, it wouldn't be probably funny. I don't know, you know if it's funny, but it would be different if he would just be in a rage. So he does this as he has to do it, right? It's completely normal. It's part of his daily routine. And the piece is actually built in a way that it is self-reconstructing all the time. So three phases. I just let me show you this moment because it's quite important. Sound. This is about 10 minutes now after the beginning of the loop. So we've seen the normal guy on the left-hand side and the kind of weirdish guy on the right side. Yes, but now uh, he jumped. The other guy has actually left the apartment already, and he will come in now on the right-hand side, while this guy, the angry guy, jumps to the mirror to the left side and starts to destroy everything there. And the other guy starts to reconstruct everything on the right-hand side. And then there's still the moment where the left side is destroyed. So the guy then will change again. The side will repair it. And the other guy will be normal. So there's three phases. Normal, destruction, reconstruction. At the end, everything is again as it was at the beginning. It was just a bit tricky about 
with the mirror because the mirror is gone and what to do about the mirror. So he has to come back in with the new mirror and put it in there. The only thing I don't tell you how we did that because you don't see it is the ceiling roof. It's just there. So um, it's a kind of self-reconstructing system as maybe life itself or metaphor for life or metaphor for our kind of weird daily routine. Apologies for my repetitive vocabulary. In German, I could probably say it a bit more complex. But <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm I just going to jump to a moment where you see this, what you have already seen on the, if I find it. Hard to find. Yeah, here, for instance. So the guy now is on the left, is destroying. And so on. Yeah, so it's 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 all mirrored. Um, of course, it's a bit tricky because you can't repair something in the same speed and you destroy it, but we found some way around that, whatever you make out of that. The, um, yeah, I need to accelerate a little bit. Sure. Ah, yeah. Um, I forgot to say that. On the left-hand side, uh, the only thing that actually happens is the space itself. So the, the, the architecture is doing things to him. So it's not only the greenery, it's also sometimes the space gets smaller or all of a sudden it's empty. It's just a way of um, making that side of the mental space more interesting or more complex. So it's like the whatever you make out of it, but it's the mental space that changes, while the other one is the attitude. Maybe? I don't know. So this is the way it's shot. It's actually basic, it's very simple. If you, if you cover one side, you understand it's just, there's just a curve at the end, but there's this kaleidoscopic spec, uh, effect that you have when you see the thing mirrored, and that's the way it was shot. Yeah, you can see this piece downstairs. Um, in the first part of the Trilogy of Failure, we see a different character as this guy who lives in a shabby apartment. Um, he also has some tics. You can see that on this picture. He likes to um, put things very accurately, although he's a messy guy, but he, for instance, he has this milk box exactly on the corner of his table. And don't ask me why he does that, ask him. <laughs> and. Um, he starts to, um, all of a sudden, out of an inner need, necessity, to pile up every furniture he has to this kind of sculpture and build this tower out of it until he finishes it. And then there's this door in the background that he discovers by chance. There's this mattress blocking it before on the left-hand side. And he wants to use that material too. And he discovers it. And in that space, I'm going to show you an excerpt soon, he finds this guy, which is himself, um, as a Foley artist, um, making the sounds live for his own life. Um, this is the way it is shown. It's shown on three screens. So on, in the center, you see the main, mainly in the center, you see the main kind of film. So he's, again, a pendulum movement of this guy in the daily routine. 
And on the left and the right, you see him once from above and once from, from the front in his sound studio with all these objects that surround him that he needs to create the sounds to, um, yeah, um, to create the sounds for his own life. Um, I chose this double perspective, which is actually literally shot with two cameras at the same time because I like the idea that the upper one shows the world translated into a series of objects, so why not um, translating it into something else? And the other one is translating it into simple movement. It seems like almost dance-like. I'll show you a quick excerpt of that. And it's done in a way that you actually never really know who's following whom, who's the master and the slave. So sometimes the sound that you actually hear now are adjusted to the sound maker, and sometimes they're more adjusted to the guy in the, in the center, because a real sound maker, a real Foley artist doesn't work like that. He doesn't do all this at once. He would do the steps first, and then the cloths, and then the objects, and so on, in multiple layers, and many recordings. So it was uh, thrilling for him, too. He's a real Foley artist to do, um, to do it all at once, and then later, do because we had to first we shot the central screen then he did that foley thing and then um, he was doing foley's for the foley maker so and again I liked that a lot and um, I, I like consider this trilogy and, and other projects of mine rather like experiments or almost pseudo scientific experiments where you try to you know build an an experiment about the human brain or uh, psychology and just make it bring it into some images without really knowing the outcome. So I go quickly through it again to show you that moment that refers to the, the mirror jump would here be the, the moment when he, when he arrives at the, here he builds the tower, you see, he's almost ready, and then takes 17 minutes to do it, as you can see, even more. And he's very proud about it. So he, he does also that uh, with an attitude of it has to be done, and he does it again and again. Um, like the other work, this thing is completely reconstructing itself, so it doesn't need any outer influence at all. And I like the idea that we think um, this is weird, but maybe everybody does this thing, apart from you. <laughs> yeah, once they close the curtain, this starts. <laughs> so this is the moment where he discovers himself Needs some time to tune himself in. And then it just goes on the way you've seen it before. Um, so the guy who just entered the space, the apartment will just bring everything back into place, clean the apartment up. There's this change of perspective. And then once everything is back in the place, he, he goes for smoke. Just stop here for a second. So what happened now is that the, the pendulum movement for the first time is just going on. It leaves the, the flat. And what you see now is the entire machinery, the world, if you want so, um, necessary to create what you just have seen. And that gets, again, highly complex because um, there's this, um, I'm going to give you a few of my, my, my own mind fuck, <laughs> a bit of it. So there's this red carpet where, where the blue chair is sitting on, and the red carpet spot that you see now from above is the center of a circle. And on that circle, the camera moves around the set, and the, the first bit of it that you've seen was the pendulum, uh, a little bit, a segment of that, of that circle. 
And um, so as the camera, which is shooting the film that he was, um, how do you say, like, um, um, folding? Or what do you, how do you, what's the word? <laughs> Help me, whatever it is. Well, synchronizing, let's say it's synchronizing. Um, he, he always saw this, you see that, that, uh, that screen in the, in the spot? You see the red, the red spot and there's a screen. On that screen he sees the film, so he sees himself. But now the camera left the set and he's shooting that whole thing from outside. And if you see on the left and right side, you see through a window, so the guy took away, uh, something away and you see a screen. That's again the same screen. So now the camera sees what is just shooting. So on that screen is exactly what this camera is shooting. I don't know if you can follow. It doesn't also matter if you can follow because it is just um, my fascination for making it complex, not complicated, but showing that everything is also a construction, right? Everything is a, a, a fiction and you can see life as a total fiction. Your own, your own life, you're today, you're here as a fictitious person. You're not here, you just think you're here. <laughs> Um, but everything is a construction if you want to look at it like that. And um, so every person involved uh, in the making of this piece is also visible for one second. The only problem was how to show the cameraman himself. And a solution was found through a mirror and he's shooting himself for a second. I'm also in it for a second, walking through the image. So the whole cosmos necessary to build this is also depicted. And at the end of the circle, the camera goes down back into the apartment, here's the mirror, and yeah, games of composition of colors and stuff, this lamp and the red spot, and then we're back in there, and uh, this is the beginning that you've just seen, so it restarts again, reconstructs itself. Um, yeah, if you can see that piece downstairs, I talked a little bit more about these pieces because you have them here so you can see them with time, but you know now a little bit more what it is about for me. Okay. Um, yeah, in that case, I kept the, the set and exhibited it once in a museum. And this is the, this is the actual set. I like to show these things sometimes in artist talks. Um, because they show a little bit about the work that is involved, um, the cinematic work, which is very important to me. Um, this is, I'm often asked um, how I see this work, and I, I actually think like uh, doing art with film, shooting on film, that, that early work is all shot on film, has a lot to do with, with painting, where you add up layer per layer by light, right? If you, if you shoot on film, those among you who have done that before know that it's not just grabbing something, as it would be with a simple video camera on the street or something, but it's more reconstructing the whole image by tons of lights, because light is necessary to make film work, and that's where it gets really interesting. Um, yeah, let me go very fast to this, just with some stills without showing you an excerpt. This is part three, which is called The Perfectionist. I thought it must be a trilogy, but I, did, I didn't do myself a favor because part one and two, which, which you've just seen so perfectly worked as a duo, but I had the ambition to make it a trilogy, so I almost failed completing the trilogy of failure. And then I, I, I found that um, 
that an interesting aspect in my own kind of perfectionism and an interesting aspect and I made a piece about it which is called The Perfectionist. So we see this guy. He's a parachutist in a small, um, yeah, um, in, a, in a parachute um, airport where, he, where they sit down and we went to see a few of these places and it's normally a really small office-like thing where they change and get the parachute on and then they go on the airfield and go on the airplane and jump. And he is um, not trusting his gear and he's re before, well, he always constantly goes to that glass door, glass door to go outside but when he's in the door he says like, mm, I better check it again. And he checks it again, and again he goes to the door and checks it again. He can't just get out of that. It's really obsessive. Until that, um, that happened, what you see now on the, on the image, that the actual flying happens inside the space. Uh, on the central screen, he is a pilot on an airfield um, and drinking milk. And he's standing there in the, in the airplane. And um, you know the typical thing you have seen a thousand of times in, 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 in movies and TV um, movies uh, where you see a quick image of the pilot inside the cockpit and normally does this click clack. And the next shot is always the airplane taking off. Think about patterns in, in images you have consumed and what it does to your thinking about the world. And so in my case, this figure is uh, not stopping to do that. He's never going anywhere. And he becomes a kind of ballet of, um, of, of touching buttons and stuff. And the third one is this guy. He's always the same actor. In, th in this case, it's, it's three alter uh, ego, Iggy, whatever it is, the plural of alter ego. And he is um, yeah, this kind of nerdy guy um, living in this bungalow collecting everything that has to do with airplane catastrophes and the disability of flying. So he has a, the burning Hindenburg in the background, um, pinched butterflies, and he builds models of airplane catastrophes. It's his hobby. And yeah, and then he has this, he has this box with him and he opens, um, it takes a long time for, for us to understand what's in the box and actually is there's a fork machine in the box and what he does is he, creates his own clouds and just wants to fly. So he flies inside his apartment. And <laughs> but then this fork machine gets out of control and it doesn't stop. Um, 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 I might show you that moment. <laughs> it's easier. It's faster to show it to you than to explain it. I will open it. OK, there, this this. Uh, yeah. Um, again, I'm making a picture of how this was done. Yeah, I um, probably won't show you everything I wanted to show you, but I'm going to show you an excerpt of this piece, and then we jump straight to uh, a few words about the piece that is the main piece that is down in the show. This piece was here. It was this installation shot I showed you at the very beginning called American Night. Um, it um, continues quite well, or um, first quite well to what I've shown before. I'm very interested also in the construction of um, cinema, and it's a simple um, curiosity or yeah, a, a passion for for what cinema does with us and how it functions, and also how different genres in cinema function. So I'm making my way slowly through various genres without being an expert before, but I become a, a passionate lover of those genres by researching it. So this was 
dedicated to the genre of the Western film. Um, also happened uh, through a coincidence, I was um, hiking in Tenerife and discovered those mountains there and it reminded me of, of, of um, Western films. And I spoke to a local gallerist who was exhibiting my work, that's why I was there, and I told him that I would like to do a Western here, and years later he called me up and said, like, we're having a, the biennial of the Canary Islands, you know, nowadays every village in the world has a biennial, so the Canaries have a biennial too. And that was very good because they had a lot of money and didn't know what to do with it. And he called me and said, like, you want to do your Western? Um, go for it. I have the money for you to make it short. And at the same time, uh, lots of things happened in the world and interested me. And so I was very interested um, in um, seeing a parallelity between the myth of the frontier or the founding myth of America, you know, the, the, the civilized East Coast and then the way to across the frontier to the uncivilized West, um, looking for your fortune. And all that cult of the weapon that comes out of this idea of being your own sheriff and being your own judge and taking your destiny in your own hands, no law, just the law that you create. And, and to US foreign policy nowadays, that was about the time of invading Iraq. Um, and I found a strong parallelity in that. And so I made a piece, in one way it's a piece, it's an homage to the Western film genre, but it's also a, a work about USA Today or a, a collapsing empire maybe. And I call it American Night. So American Night is, of course you can, um, it's, it's the, the, the uh, dusk of America if you want so, but it's also um, uh, a cinematographic term. Like you either say American Night, you say day for night when you shoot something during the day that should look like night with blue filters and unexposed images. This is the way it is um, presented. It's a little bit elliptical, um, um, half circle, um, with five screens. Each of the screens refers to one element that can't miss in a Western film. On the left-hand side, it's the lonely cowboy, that, and that image is rarely visible. Um, lost in the landscape. Um, in my film, he is, though not a cool Marlboro cowboy who controls the environment but he's, or his life, but he's rather a romantic, introverted um, German painting, Caspar David Friedrich um, cowboy. Then you have the deserted Western village town on the second screen from the left. In the middle, you have the campfire scene, a scene with um, cowboys gathering around the campfire. Then you have a saloon scene what you see there are two puppets. One is uh, Barack Obama and one is George W. Bush. Um, they're having a discussion. And on the right-hand side is the waiting woman. That's also a topos that happens in like, literally every Western film. She's either waiting in front of a hut or in front of a wigwam. Uh, um, she's Indian, native. She's normally waiting. There's two um, cliches of women in Westerns. One is the waiting woman, one is the saloon lady. Um, yeah, that's the way it was shown, different... Um, um, situations. And I'm going to show you a quick excerpt of that and then we jump straight to the last project. Oops, why is it? Yeah. Okay, again, you have to imagine those five screens the way I've shown them to you before. Um, I'm going to talk over it. So at the beginning, it's again, it's a 40, how long is it? 41 minutes loop. 
um, and long time, long shots, um, and we just simply observe um, or we establish the scene. So you have the, the, the cowboy in the first screen and the village and then those cowboys. The saloon, the saloon is filling up during the day. That's the screen number four is the one in the left lower corner on the screen, which is the one where most of the action unfolds. Um, it's filling up during the day because there is this travel theater, varieté theater in town with a puppeteer. And they, um, they just, um, it ju the screen shows just how this, uh, how this space fills up with people. And the woman is waiting. And it takes quite a long time until anything happens. Um, you have sometimes here on this um, thing, I have made one screen bigger so you understand what it's about. There's this guy, this protagonist coming up. He's a black cowboy that was um, interesting because at the time I wrote this script for it, there was no Barack Obama yet in our mind. He didn't exist. I mean, he was probably a governor somewhere, but we didn't know about him. And then a black um, man became president of the United States, and I was quite happy about it because my protagonist is also black. Um, so each of the scenes break, uh, breaks in a way with the cliche of the Western. Um, you will see soon in which way. Um, but well, the first one is the attitude of that cowboy who's um, is really not yet here, but then you will see later he's very romantic and very lost. He's com completely uncool. And then there's this um, discussions among the cowboys who start to talk about the founding myth of America. Everything that is said in this film is quoted from Western films and also from political speeches of our time. So there's a lot of George W. Bush in it, John McCain, and there's even a rap of 50 Cent in it. So the whole weapon cult um, refers to that, um, you know, the gangster rap music also refers to Clint Eastwood and the Western film genre, of course. And yeah, go quickly to that. Maybe I go, yeah, there. we found this guy. It's quite amazing because he's. Feel your hand, you son of a bitch. You are trolling. Give me your gun. You can have my gun. That is Charlton Heston, for instance, who said that the, um, the actor would later chef of the, um, what's called the Rifle, United Rifle Association, the, the big weapon lobby in the, in the States. You can have my gun when you can pry it loose from a cold dead hand. And we found this guy. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he's not, it's not Charles Bronson. It's a Polish, um, super nice guy who works uh, for 50 bucks a day as a, horse rider in that western village where we shot uh, the film in, in southern Spain. And they call him Broncito. <laughs> and it's funny because, again, talking about the myth-making of cinema, many people ask me, how did you get Charles Bronson to do that? And I find it very funny. Even filmmakers, not filmmakers, but people in the film business ask me, like a little bit shy, but they did ask me this question. I find it funny because Charles Bronson died, uh, I think, eight years ago, 90 years old. <laughs> But he survived because he is always that young, probably because also he, he stopped working. Uh, I mean, he was doing a few films, but he's mainly in our mind as this Western Charles Bronson, Sergio Leone guy. And so he's eternally 45 for us. And so he's, again, he's alive. And I had to change the scene I'd written because Bronzito came into game and uh, wanted him to be in the scene, of course. Six down to go with it. I felt so naked since the last time I took a bath. I'm kind of glad they took yours. Almost got you into trouble anyway. That comes to you. 
There's no such thing as a good gun, there's no such thing as a bad gun. A gun in the hands of a bad person is a very dangerous thing. A gun in the hands of a, a good person is no danger to anybody. Gun tool. That, that is John McCain. Any other tool, an axe, a shovel, anything. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. You remember that. Of course, a weapon is only as good as a man who uses it. You would say, oh, I guess. I just read the movie. Gary Cooper, Veracruz. Wow! Oh, that was a great movie. Wasn't Truffaut who said Gary Cooper's face belongs to the world of mineralogy? No, it was Godard. Godard. And he must have been talking about your face. My face. My face. My face. <laughs> I say the only technology is worth having on a six dollar in a movie camera. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Stewart. Very welcome. <laughs> Some fucking bar, Mr. Stewart. Technology's worth having are a six gun and a movie camera. Yeah, yeah. Too uh, easy. Huh? Way too easy. Come on. Be better than that? Uh, we made mistakes along the way. Sure we have. But that's no reason to go tearing up the best flag God ever gave to any country. America! <laughs> America! Must not ignore the threat gathered against us. Facing clear evidence of peril, we must not wait for the final proof. The smoking gun, which could come in the form of a, a mushroom cloud. <laughs> the enemies of liberty in our country. Do you recognize him? No? He's quite good in it, no? It's amazing. So we even threw a shoe at him, like that guy in... in remember that? <laughs> Okay, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they go back to work, and they actually say, let's go back to work when they start to lay down at the fire. And then one eats the lip balm or something of the other guy because the fire burns his lips. So we're also changing the film genre and the, of course, also the, the visual language of the film genre. So before we had the tumbleweed, which we just threw in the image, uh, and now you have this action war film all of a sudden, which leads nowhere, as actually, I think, many things happening nowadays lead nowhere um, in politics. I mean, this, this is about, it's a simple metaphor, maybe, America today attacking its own grounding myth and, and just, you know, demounting it, which I think is actually really happening at the moment, at the very moment in the world. And so each screen has its moment where some weird things happens and the cliché is deconstructed. Um, the saloon fills up on the left-hand side. We have a show. We have, a, um, we have these two guys, a theater, Obama and Bush. Um, Obama's preaching, and Bush is... Um, 
Oh, I have to say that before, because I was saying uh, at the time there was no Obama, so this was again something that came up later when we were in pre-production um, and Obama was elected. I was kind of irritated about all this fascination for him, and I mean, I like him far more than George W. Bush, but I was kind of mistrusting all this euphoria, and he got the, I mean, just later he got the peace novel for whatever, and um, yeah, and I, I, so I gave him this preaching voice, but what he says is actually John McCain is the guy who he fought uh, during his election, and George W. just feels like shooting somebody. Then this leads to the ob obligatory um, saloon battle. Um, yeah. And... And these cowboys that we've seen around the campfire before, they are, in that film as well, they're approaching the city slowly and um, riding into town. Here they are arriving. Broncito is among them. And they come into the saloon, seeing that, and then... That's Mozart, and um, it was a um, discovery, actually, because I was looking for a requiem, um, maybe, maybe a bit uh, of a platitude, but I wanted a requiem for that American night thought, and I experimented with various requiems, and Mozart turned out to be the perfect score for uh, American, uh, for Westerns. I wonder why nobody else has done that before. It's just perfect, it's just perfect sound for a Western film. Um, yeah, and then again, there's this, like in many of my films, there's this deconstructive moment where you all of a sudden see the filmmaker and the, the lay of the filmmaker. So there's this director talking to the audience, thanking them, and hand your, guy, hand your guns at the exit. The guy, thank you, it was a great day. And American Night, I mentioned it before, is also a, a method of filmmaking. Um, this bluish filter. So they all give their guns away and talk, and then there's this moment. It's funny, though, that the, um, the uh, Pacific Ocean doesn't show up in, in Westerns. I know two, and I've seen many, 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 I can tell you, uh, where you see the ocean, which is funny because California has an entire coast, but it doesn't correspond to the myth of the frontier, so it's never shown in the Western. Isn't that funny? Because all people that actually have made it to the West have, of course, seen the ocean, but it's never shown in the Western. It says a lot about the way reality is constructed in, in, in cinema. Okay, I'm going to close here with um, a few words about Manifesto. I would normally jump now from here through the image of this romantic cowboy to um, German uh, romantic pa painting and uh, national myths and so on, but I spare you that. <laughs> Another time. <laughs> Going to here and to here and so on. Um, there's a piece in the show downstairs which is called Deep Gold, which also is um, um, showing a lot of filmmaking machinery. It's an homage to Louis Bunuel's film, Lash Door, The Golden Age. I just want to say something about this. You can see this um, film down in the show, so it's no need to show it to you here. But I advise you to see after that or before that the original film, and you can YouTube it, actually. It's not nice to say that Acme, but you can... You can YouTube that film if you Google, uh, if you put Large Door, so the French title, in, 
in YouTube. You can find the whole film. It's an hour long. It's his second film, still written with Dali, but then executed alone, 1930, a masterpiece of um, surrealist um, surrealism. And this is an homage to that film, uh, a part of a film anthology um, created by six artists. I was just invited to be one of them, and we all dedicated a piece to that film. So that's my film. It's called Deep Gold. And we jumped to that one. Um, and this is, um, those of you who have been downstairs, I mean, you have probably seen a few posters in town or here in the building about um, Kate Blanchett and these various um, characters. So um, I have a short trailer which I can show, but maybe you don't. I don't even need. I don't even need to show you that because you can see the show downstairs. But I'm gonna explain you a little bit because now I'm here today and I'm not here down in the show in the next days. So I'm explaining you a little bit what led us to this project. Um, researching for the project I was just shown, uh, I, I've just been showing Deep Gold, that uh, surrealist um, homage to Louis Bunuel's Lash Door. Um, I came across the reading of um, two um, feminist manifestos, and that had to do with my focus on, on large door, and found those texts very fascinating and um, got into this reading, manif reading manifesto thing and read about every manifesto, artist manifesto that I could get in my hands. And at the same time, there was this um, kind of idea in the air because uh, Kate Blanchett and I have met um, a few years ago through a mutual friend in Berlin um, who introduced us and in an exhibition, luckily in an exhibition opening of mine, so she had a direct impact with my work and liked it and we got along well, started talking and then she said, why don't we do something together maybe one day and I found that a fantastic <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, and kept digging and um, we were... Um, talking over a few years by email and, and, and in person when possible, what could that be? And when I came across the reading, when I, when I read this artist manifestos, I, I, I thought this is a great thing because the one thing I knew is that I wanted um, Kate to be as many characters as possible because I really think that's her great talent to transform herself. Um, she's totally good in that. And have you ever seen Todd Haynes' film, I'm Not There? The, Bob Dylan, where she plays Bob Dylan. Yeah, I'd seen that too. And I, um, actually, that's one thing we talked about when we met, and I think she liked that I pointed out that specific little character she played and not the Lord of the Rings or something. Um, so I started to, um, with all these, uh, out of all these artist manifests I've read, I started to uh, select texts and re-edit them to kind of meta-manifestos, let's say the Dada movement, there were many, many Dada manifestos, and I, I, I re-collaged kind of one meta-Dada manifesto out of that, and so at the end there were 12 collages that survived, um, 10 of them dedicated to a certain kind of artistic um, group or direction like the futurists, the surrealists, or suprematists, and two of them um, dedicated to one to film and one to architecture, it was just a decision I made because it was too complicated to integrate those texts and those artistic movements. And at the same time, I was collecting, and Kate added up a few um, scenes where a woman delivers a monologue um, under no matter what circumstances. So it could be a funeral speaker or a mother saying grace or a factory worker just in thoughts or 
a teacher talking to the class, a TV newsreader, and so on, a homeless man just speaking to himself in the street. And there were many, many more scenes, so I had about 50 or 60, 60 um, I don't remember, so 55 or whatever at the end, and we selected out of those 12, they survived and made it into the final work, Manifesto, where she performs or reenacts those manifestos, but as contemporary characters. And the idea behind was to, um, to make that, um, the beauty of those texts re-accessible for us, because we, 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 I mean, I don't know if you have ever read an artist manifesto, a few of them, a few of you have something to do with art might have heard about the Futures Manifesto or George Michunin's Fluxus Manifesto, so, but normally they're treated like um, history of art, like um, untouchable pieces of art, um, again in the sarcophagus of the White Cube, and um, when I read those manifestos, I understood immediately that they are actually written by extremely young people. Um, normally men, especially in the beginning of the 20th century, um, the female art scene was not really large. Later on in the neo avant-garde 60s, 70s, there's a few uh, female manifestos as well. There are a few also in the early 20s, um, but mostly mostly written by, by young men full of testosterone and this, this also this, you know, there's this, if you, if you read them, you understand that they're actually just manifestations also of a very young, uh, generation who is just leaving a parent's house and just stands, out, uh, stands up and says, here I am, and this is what I am, and this is what I want to be, and I want to change the world, I want to change the art world, but I want to change the whole world along. They have this fantastic energy. And as those artists later became famous artists, we treat those, uh, we see those texts nowadays as, as, as big monuments. But if you read them just freshly, you find out that they're actually speakable, um, performable, great texts. And that's what we did. So we tried to free them of the historic weight, of the weight of the uh, history of, of history of art, um, and gave them life. Also by giving them to women. Apart from the homeless man in the upper left corner, all of the other characters are women. And I found that interesting. There's maybe a little feminist statement in there too, but also again just making that voices readable in another in another way. Yeah, and I invite you all to go down and, and see the show, Manifesto. I think I'm going to stop here and open up for you to ask me some questions if you want. So we're far over time, so I don't know if I understand. So if you have any questions, please ask me. If you want, you can also just close. <laughs> it's been a long talk. Yes. Um, yeah, it's amazing technically all the resources you bring together and how difficult is it or are you often asked, you know, will you direct a whole film or will you do ads or will you do music videos? How, how do you sort of keep on your track and still be financial? Yeah, that's a good question, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's two questions. So one is it's very difficult to finance projects, especially in the art world. Um, these projects are far cheaper than they look. Like for, um, I mean, if I show this stuff to movie makers, they always think it's 10 times more than it actually costed. But still, um, it's, it's a lot of money, so it is uh, difficult. So it partly works through selling those works to, to museums. Um, sometimes there's an invitation from the biennial of the Canary Islands. Um, there might be some film funding in it sometimes, but that's very rarely the case. Um, a price, you know, kinds of, I, I put, as soon as I earn any money, I just re put it back in the next production. So, um, 
it's just I do this because I really want to do it, and um, there's still there's still that answers kind of the second part of your question. There's still a, a lot to explore, I think. And I'm often asked, when do you do your first feature film? And maybe it will come, but it's not for me. It's not the next step up. It's just a parallel step. Um, you know, cinema works with basically there are three boxes: a short film, long film, documentary. And this is a, it's very small, right? It's, it's a very small world if you think it like that. You have to fulfill one of these uh, three boxes, and in the art world at least, although I've talked a lot tonight about the prison of the white cube, but there is the possibility of doing something in loop on several screens, uh, logical, illogical, um, play with it. You have a seven minutes piece or a seven hour piece, and that's something that um, offers you a lot of freedom. You can also just start working when you, when you have what you, what you wanted, and you're not need to, you don't need to go in, into this whole production circus of the film industry, right, or the TV industry. And that's a, that's a large freedom. And it's for a reason that many artists, many filmmakers actually made the move to the art world because they found it easier to <laughs> finance the projects there. And of course, there's an, uh, is the opposite movement as well, like people like Steve McQueen, not the actor, the, the director. Um, he started as an artist, and or maybe he started as a filmmaker, but then made his career as an artist and then moved back to to Hollywood, and there's all this, I find it very interesting, I think Kate also made this project because she's thinking the same way, like she wants to widen her perspective on contemporary moving image and try out as much as possible, it's just interesting, right? So moving image is not, doesn't have to be necessarily happening in here or on one screen or in, in that TV thing, it can happen maybe in other ways, and that's uh, still a wide field of um, research. Um, was your piece yesterday's well, the black and white? Was it shown as part of this um, installation? Was that your American piece? American Night? Uh, it no, was no, no, shown no, no, no. here about three years ago. The Sting of the Scorpion was... was, was uh, uh, the scor Monday, sorry, Monday. Was the black piece with Angel and the Feathers yours? Um, and the presentation here, you mean? On Wednesday? Oh. When will we yes, Monday. The, on Wednesday. actually they showed the whole, the, what yeah. they showed on Monday here was the six parts I just mentioned was... Was your part in it? I was part in it. Okay, my question. You come across as an, um, okay, contemporary artist and irony and deconstruction and detachment is part of being a contemporary artist because mm -hmm. you basically say, look, everything is fictional, it's construction. But what makes your art beautiful is actually your references to... Mozart, and there was another piece, I don't know, was it Wagner or Richard Strauss? Mm. And all that that you've absorbed over the years of growing up in a beautiful European country. And my question is, do you think we will ever make again what Mozart did? Because this piece was fantastic, because not only your vision, but Mozart at the end sounded, do you understand? It was the best piece. Do you see yourself making authentic film without being detached and experimental, but actually you have the potential to say a simple human story in a way that everybody will be touched. Do you see that Europe will ever come back to that, or we will, this is the end, like contemporary art. You mean irony. in my work or generally in culture? I'm talking about your work and generally in Europe. Yeah. I mean, as I said at the very beginning of my talk, I believe that, um, and I showed for a reason, the very first pieces uh, 20, from 20 years ago where I said like uh, there was this generational thought like no new image has to be done because everything has been already expressed visually and why not recycling it and actually we do recycle all the time like whatever you think and also what you just said is a reflection of what you have 
experienced in your life, read in your life, seen in your life, and that thought came out of you because you have consumed images and read words. But you see, they truly believed. Yeah, we, but there's where we don't know, truly believe anymore. We say, well, that's 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 the question. Ourselves. Because sometimes um, that's that's interesting. But that, that's like. Um, um, I mean, everything you, you do, I mean, I'm researching on that, right? My work is on that, it's about that, about this construction. And I try to question, like, to which degree, what is original? What is actually coming out of me? Uh, is there something that is still untouched in me by consume? Or is it everything is actually that I, I, that I can say, I can do, I can, I can film? is a reflection of what I've already seen and observed. And, uh, you know, so why not just, uh, I mean, I can sit down and compose my own music, but I can also use Mozart. Where's the difference? Like, you know, it's... My question is, that can is you what sit my down and compose about. your own music? Because I think I can. You can. I think, yeah. I, well, I would probably not be as good as Mozart. <laughs> I could sit down and make my own music. Well, that, one more question. Do you think we don't speak about death and we don't speak about, about our own... Finity? I don't know, my English is probably as limited as yours because my original language is different. Finity, like rituals and things that fill our life fill that space. But do you think once we start thinking about the fact we are finite, we're going to die, may make us think of no, because making we different to, art? We, we, the, the, the beautiful thing about human nature is it's completely out of control. Except right, so, death. <laughs> no, we're going to kill ourselves sooner or later for sure. I mean, we just observe that every day. But on the other side, on the good side, it's we never stop thinking, we never stop questioning, we never stop producing, we never stop. And on the, on this produ the production on one side kills us all, but on the other side, it also produces ideas and questions. And, and so we get curious. I mean, you see that in my own children, they keep on asking me things and want to know and want to know and want to know. And I find it so beautiful to see that, that unstoppable, that kind of cancerous human nature you know that's that's what we are and 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 so i guess that is never ending thank you i don't know if that was an answer to the question <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice day. Thanks. are there any final questions before we wrap up hi thanks for that just wondering if you could um talk about your relationship to painting because i, I see a lot of relationships to painting in your work mm. and you did mention it a few times yeah i mean um Generally, I think um, when, I'm, when I'm asked if you are a video artist, you are a video artist or photographer, I find that quite limiting. And um, because my perspective, my perspective on art is um, wider, I mean, I don't paint. I would be probably very bad in it, as I would be in composing, trying to be as Mozart. But um, I do think, um, I think, I do think like a, a, a painter, or I feel more familiar sometimes with with a painter than with other. Um, producers of moving image in a way that I construct an image um, layer by layer, not only by light, but also by, you know, compositional uh, um, interest and quoting. I'm quoting a lot. I'm referring a lot to, um, to painting history uh, in Asylum, the first moving piece I've shown. There's a lot of tableau vivant in it, a lot of, you know, raft of the Meduse, you know, pathos, if you want so. And, um, there's also um, a lot of references to cinema, to, uh, to filmmakers. I consider also like painting filmmakers. So there's this interest coming from many directions. Um, but again, it's a research. Um, I consider myself always stupid and just wanting to learn and, and finding out things. So I start, like, again, like with this Western project. Um, just becoming, um, seeing all these movies and finding if you ever, if you ever have the time to do that. I just highly advise you to do that. See, 
you know, all Westerns from one filmmaker and see how it evolved and what, what, what is to be discovered there. It's just highly fascinating. Um, um, but it's out of a very um, naive curiosity. And you can find a lot of painting, by the way, in, in Westerns. Are you a painter? Yeah. Yeah, okay. What did you see in that? Um, did, you, uh, did you just say, ask the question because I said it, or did you see some painting reference in there? Yeah. Yeah. There's also a lot of um, in, in this genre-like um, references to painting. You may, mentioned the overwhelming aspect of it. That is something that I often discuss critically because it has also a, the danger of kitsch in it and danger of becoming too trivial maybe. But I'm not afraid of pathos at all because I think life is full of pathos all the time. And we like pathos actually. It's very funny because in the art, um, in the art discourse, in, nowadays there's a lot of dryness and everything has to have a reason and a, a name and this. And I find a lot of really dry thinking in it while the same people having that discourse really want to eat sweet chocolate and have delicious food and passionate sex. But they, they don't get it connected to what they are working about often. And I find that very interesting. It seems to be like a fashion of our days. Maybe in 10 years, we're going to laugh about that um, fashion in contemporary art discourse because we really need to, we are, there seems to be a, a need nowadays to avoid strong feelings. Um, but when you then do that, it's, it seems like a relief to people, like um, the pieces down there, they have this voluptuous energy and pathos and of course I, I also find it edgy when I hear Mozart there, I think like, oh, maybe that's a bit too far, but then why not, you know, just go for it and find out that it actually makes sense with that landscape and does something to you. And it's like when you sit in a movie and you <coughs> try to wipe out the, the tear of your, of your eye. I don't know, I'm not afraid of it, but I, I see the, the potential um, danger of being misread in it. Again, it's research on the way this functions rather than my wish to hear Mozart for that, uh, with that landscape, yeah. Oh, do you, um, just looking at um, the moving image, do you feel like the main, mainstream art galleries have have accepted and Sorry, I, I you, I'm talking about you know the the moving image, mm -hmm. your, um, cinema, film, but what you do, um, do you feel like the mainstream art galleries, you know, um, in all big cities of the world, you know, have embraced it as, as, as a legitimate art form? Uh, I don't think so, not yet. Not, not yet? No, I think that's happening. Um, I mean, I just was two weeks ago, I was in, at the MoMA, and they have this big film department, a lot of people working there. Um, and not being an institute like the BFI or the ACME, but being the MoMA, and being always in conversation with their colleagues from the other departments, maybe makes them uh, more advanced in that, in that sense, but I, I think there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, filmmakers are often, I mean, most of the question, like, when I'm confronted with the question, when do you do your first movie, it says it all, right? There seems to be like a, a big gap between filmmaking art and, and art art, yeah? <laughs> and I don't, I don't see the difference at all. Like, for me, I mean, whatever, Antonioni, Kubrick, just to name, like, super famous. Uh, filmmakers are uh, uh, artists, they just chose to make moving image, uh, but it's, it's completely, I don't see any difference in the way they approach um, creating images or, you know, composition, it's just a, a different media, but they, they could be done a lot more about it, yeah. Do you think that too? <laughs>
Well, I, you know, I, I, well the energy of, the energy of ease, I mean, starting to embrace the moving image I feel since mm. since Acme started around, what, 2000? You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more moving image works at the NGV, so hopefully mm. that's a good sign. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. So guys, you must be all tired now. <laughs> I think we might have to leave it there. Um, can you all please join me in thanking Julian? Thank you very much for coming and for yeah. listening all the time to me. And uh, unfortunately, because we have run over time, um, we don't have time for the signing. But if you are interested in getting your... Oh, no, they have kept it open. So if you are interested in getting a catalogue and having Julian sign it, um, if you want to come with me and we can arrange that for you. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.